author, chef, TV star, podcast host. Dave Chang is the greatest food personality of all time. And I'm not just saying that because I've appeared five times on his shows. Okay, I am. But Dave does have a good record of calling trends. And now he's telling us how we're going to eat in the future. I'm Gustavo Arian. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. Today, we'll spend the show with Dave to talk about his new Hulu series, The Next Thing You Eat, which, full disclosure, I appear in. We'll discuss what he found, why he thinks Southern California is such a great place for food, and also the future of the food industry in the era of COVID-19. I think in food, in food science, there is unbelievable ingenuity that is around the corner. When I think about the future, I think about my kids and what are we going to leave them? Without pain and struggle, you're not David Chang. (laughs) Everything's on the table. That's part of the trailer for The Next Thing You Eat, which you can stream on Hulu now. I appeared in the burger and sushi episodes. And Dave, remember that amazing Mexican sushi we had and how Ryan Seacrest beat us to it? Did Seacrest beat us or was it Marty Lowe? No, it was Ryan Seacrest. It was Ryan Seacrest. (laughs) Of all the people, who would have thought that Mexican sushi in the United States would be discovered by Ryan Seacrest, man? I still have been disbelief ever since you told me that when we're at that restaurant. I was like, that's not possible. But you know what? I guess you have to keep an open mind to anything. Exactly. So, Dave, welcome to The Times. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me, Gustavo. Okay, so the next thing you eat, awesome series, and not just because I'm in two of the episodes, but it questions the very premise of the food industry right now, and it argues that it needs to change and fast. So where did the idea for the show come from? Well, it started when I was just talking to friends in March of 2020 and uh, just checking on on people, how are things, and I called my friend Morgan Neville, who we've worked together before on Ugly Delicious, another show that Gustavo's been on. Uh, Morgan, wanting to always be the storyteller that he is, was like, hey, do you mind if I talk to some of your friends? And he just set up a bunch of Zoom calls. Uh, This is the end. (laughs) This is the end of the restaurant universe as we know it. This is really surreal. Like, I couldn't imagine something like this ever happening. I don't think there's a chef out there right now who's not just scared of like, what's gonna happen in the next few weeks. My mantra has always been fear, but I've never been more scared in my entire life. And from there, I was just totally open to anything because he's like, I think we can do a show out of this. But we didn't want it to be a show documenting the misery that we're all living in. And that was, I think, the genesis of it was how do you tell a story without reminding everybody that things are terrible? Jobs is, is the question that everyone always asks about. You know, my first job, I was making pizza at 14. You know, my kid is not going to have that job anymore because that will be automated by the time he grows up. What happens when those entry-level positions for people that come to this country are not available anymore? You know, people will be, be trained to use this, and this will spawn a whole another another world of different kind of jobs. But you're right, like the low-skilled jobs, there's going to be less of that in the back of house, certainly in the long term. That was the pitch to Hulu, and Hulu was like, hey, we'll leave this to, up to you guys. It's open-ended. And that discovery process led to the show, which I think changed along the way. By virtue of it being done during COVID. Yeah, and the filming took place over a year because of the stop-and-go nature of shooting with shutdowns and lockdowns, and a lot of it was done remotely, extremely difficult to do. And 
I think the fear was that it was so heavy. It was so, so heavy that the idea changed as, as things got edited down. But what happened along that way as we we're shooting, the seriousness didn't lose its sort of intensity, but it allowed people to become more curious. This economy is not sustainable and it will implode. So if we don't use this as a moment to build our own institutions, to take care of our own people, we're going to miss out. It was more open-ended, which is what we wanted it to be. So you could have a conversation, what was around the future, and sort of taking away the current predicament of the pandemic. So I think, long story cut short, making it around 30 to 27 minutes was extremely powerful because you don't want someone to watch something and be like, oh, God damn it. You want people to watch something and be entertained, but also to think about it. And, and that's what we wanted to do with a lot of the questions is, I don't know. No one knows exactly what's going to happen in the future of food. And we wanted to make sure that we could at least be having conversations for those things that might happen. So we are better prepared. I was told, and I'm just trying to have an understanding, what does exactly wild type do? Yeah, so we've come up with a way to make sushi, salmon, uh, in our case, uh, without using animals. So we grow cells and sculpt them into fish meat. I was working on heart regeneration, looking at how our cells can regrow after a heart attack. You know, I realized this can be applied to just grow the foods that we love outside of the animal. Can we see it? Can we try it? Yeah, of course. So you focus on six subjects, how food is delivered, burgers, restaurants in general, breakfast, sushi, and then what we're going to eat in the future. Why that breakdown? Well, those are sort of the main topics. I think above that, if you were going to break them into different buckets, they were tied really into robotics, technology, efficiency, sort of the march towards singularity. And another one was the environment. So it was like three sort of mother buckets that got separated down into six. And clearly we could have done many, many more, but what we saw was there was a lot of overlap between all of those episodes. So you do all this, the series is done. How are you feeling about the future of the food industry? I am hopeful. I'm scared. Mm. There's a healthy dose of, I don't know what's going to happen. Clearly there's a labor shortage. Clearly there's a inflation. There's all of these challenges ahead. And the reason why I'm optimistic is whatever challenges that lie ahead of the restaurant industry are so daunting and so great that I feel like it has to mobilize innovation and not technology. And that's what the future food to me was something that I really try to wrap my head around. It's not technology. It is new thinking. You know, it's being open to new thought. And I'm seeing that. You see more and more mm. new ideas happen. And that's what I think is going to actually be the cause of optimism, is openness to new ideas. And I think that openness is going to be caused because people have no choice. Or, yeah, I mean, we see this comet hurling towards us in the future. So we better figure something out to either destroy that comet or be able to live with the doom of that comet. I, I, I don't know. I think I'm optimistic. Like, you know, one of the things we talk about in the episode, at least with the restaurants, was with this food app called Food Gnome. It's an amazing concept, right? You take the legislation that California's passed and that you can have a restaurant out of one's home. Well, but yeah, only in certain parts of California, like in L.A. County, you still can't legally do that. Not like anyone pays attention to that much, though. Well, if I'm a cook or if I wanted to open up a restaurant, I think that's an amazing opportunity to start your own business rather than mortgaging your home or mortgaging your future home 
to start a business, your restaurant, just do it in the place that you're living right now, right? And build that audience that way. I, I think that home is going to be more of a pressing medium for how people eat. Restaurants aren't going away, man. That's not happening. But I think when people go to restaurants, it's going to be probably two for one is to celebrate, to have something that is an experience. And two is to have something that's comforting. I think in that process, we're going to lose mom and pop operations, independent operations that are trying to do things that are avant-garde to really push the envelope. But that doesn't mean it has to happen in the four walls of a restaurant. And, and clearly people are going to be cooking more at home. I don't know how many meals I've cooked at home. Home is going to take a bigger portion of the restaurant industry. That I feel pretty confident in. And it makes you happy. I don't know if it makes me happy, <laughs> you know, but I, I think it gives people more of a chance to express themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, what I mean by being happy, it's like, as you know, far more than I do, just all those regulations of opening up a restaurant, it's, you know, you have to mortgage your house. You have to put all these hours. Why can't governments just let people, hey, I'm going to sell out of my driveway these amazing tlayudas, this amazing, you know, pho or whatever, and just let people go to where they want to eat and let people do it and let people sell it on their own accord. Exactly. And, and so oftentimes that happens here in Los Angeles without any regulation. Guess what? Everybody loves it. So yeah. I don't know what the city has against it. Uh, we should open it up. And this is where I'm like, oh, my God, I sound like a goddamn libertarian or something <laughs> like that. But it's it's true. It's 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 we're, we need to give people an opportunity that are in the restaurant industry to express themselves, because I'm not saying that they shouldn't own a restaurant, but their first step should probably be something that is like double-A baseball before they go to the major leagues. We'll have more after this break. So, Dave, the next thing you eat, you focus on the future of food. And I've covered food for 20 years at this point. I love to eat. My wife runs a restaurant. So I care deeply about the subject, too. So let's talk about some other things with the food industry. We talked a little bit about restaurants, but I interviewed a chef recently, Heritage Barbecue in San Juan Capistrano, best barbecue in California. And he said that the era of Gordon Ramsay's is over. Basically, you can't be a jerk anymore. And that's putting it very nicely. So you came of age in that era. What does a non-agro era in kitchen? look like? I've certainly been trying to revisit a lot of that. And I came up in that. And um, it's funny. It's like, it's a completely different era. And I think we're figuring that out because it's still blue collar labor in a lot of ways. It's still hard labor. There's nothing easy about working in a kitchen at all. All kitchens are very difficult. And I think that it's not only over, it's overdue to, to sort of have more of an idea of how to make people happier in their job rather than base it off a military system. And, and you know, I've been held accountable. Uh, I want to get better. I'm trying to get better. I don't have any day-to-day -day operational role in the restaurants at all, but I clearly have a platform. And, and um, I think that one of the things that, is changing is people care about what is on the plate and how it gets made now. And, and before, you know, it wasn't just Gordon Ramsay. Every French chef, every chef that we've ever thought about, at least in the high-end restaurants, it was a different regime. 
it was a different era. And I think it's hard to, it's hard to compare the two because it just, it seems like it happened overnight, but it didn't. And I think how can you be mad for people to be like uh, treated in a more professional manner? There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, just covering the industry. You'd hear these stories of chefs screaming at employees, you, you know, beyond Ramsey's. I knew a guy who would get the plate and throw it against the kitchen. It's almost like if you're brought up in these systems, you think that you have to perpetuate those systems. And it's, and it's only outsiders who will see and say like, hey, that's wrong. You should be treating workers with dignity really but at the very least respect you should not be yelling at workers and then you tell the people within that system they'll say like what do you know you're an outsider but so it, it's great to have seen yeah this reckoning and people realizing like hey there is another way there's a better way yeah and and i'm learning that myself and i have i've been putting as much work in it as possible you know and we talk about things in general uh, gustavo it's like there are a lot of things that you've been in the past and you're like, oh, I wasn't aware of that. But that change doesn't happen overnight, right? And I think I hope that people are given a chance to get better and to be aware. And I think about a lot of people that I know that are of the older generation and none of them work the way they used to work, right? And I think that's a good thing. And I think in the future, it's not going to look anything like what it used to look like, and that's great. So part of that, though, is change and progress. And you're right. If you went back to 1995 in the kitchen of Lespinas in New York or, say, the early um, Checkers Kitchen when Thomas Keller was in there or uh, the first Spago, uh, I don't know if somebody would be like, hey, you shouldn't talk to somebody that way, you know? Yeah. But, like, it's hard for people to understand it when you're in it. And I think time, hopefully time heals all wounds, but I think time gives people perspective and I think time should develop some empathy. And I feel very strongly that at least with my industry, with myself, and I can't speak on behalf of anybody else, is that like, you got to put the work in, you try to get better and that's all you can do and, and, and to create a better opportunity. But, you know, you're, you're really fighting against default settings and a lot of, um, a lot of things that when you think about it, you're like, why was it that way? And it's a lot to take in. It's hard to communicate. And um, I'm trying to find ways to communicate it because you spend your life working in a certain way and you're buying things hook, lining, and sinker. But at the end of the day, it's like once you get a break, and I think the pandemic has given people a lot of that break, is be like, wait, yeah, I, it's not even working in a kitchen where you could get yelled at. And again, like I've been that yeller. It's do I even want to work in a kitchen? Even if it's in a good environment, you know, it's like, it's so hard. I mean, that's what's happening. I know a lot of my peers and people, they're becoming private chefs or they're getting a real estate license or someone I know is even thinking about starting a plumbing company. How do we get to that non-agro era? What needs to change and how is it going to happen? I mean, reflection is important, but how do you then get your, uh, your peers to actually act on changing? I think we need more professionalization in restaurants. I think a lot of it has to do with the change has to come with more money being spent on food, first and foremost, right? There's a lot of ideas. Great. It's really easy to point out the things that can be improved in restaurants. 
and this isn't the only thing, but it's something I think about a lot where I talk to somebody like, how do I get this? I would love to have this. I would love to have this service. I would love to have this. I don't want to be stressed, but I'm thinking I'm going to go out of business because of this, this, and this. Uh, people need to be spending more money on food. That is not the answer. That's, there's no magic bullet, Gustavo. But I think one thing that will help loosen up some more ideas as to how to get things better is food needs to be more expensive for some and less expensive for others. And I think how you can professionalize a kitchen and how you can do that, that's one thing. Um, and in terms of how, I think part of that is doing a lot of introspection, reflection, and getting to a place before you are acting upon it. You know what I mean? But a lot of these ideas that a lot of my friends have or I have, again, like it's the beginning of a new era. And to, to have that change, I think just talking about it and you're right, it's like talking is one thing, but I'm still trying to figure out what those answers are, right? And, and I'm not in the kitchen, but I have a platform. I have a lot of these things. But when I talk to my friends that are in it, a lot of it is I don't have the money. And the money is the stress of all things, it seems. But I also know that's not the answer either. A lot of things have to change. The pressure from reviews and Yelpers and all of these things that you think diners would be a little bit nicer after the pandemic. But honestly, I think people are more impatient than ever before about the food they get at a restaurant or the delivery or whatever. So at the end of the day, uh, it's a service-oriented business. So... You know, I had a conversation with a friend again recently about this and they're like, do you think people care about people that are like working on a oil rig? <laughs> you know, like, uh, do you think people care about how their gas gets in the car? You know, do you think they care about the people that actually have to coal mine, not because they care about the environment, but that's how they make a living, you know? And, and I think part of it is, having more empathy for how things work because there are multiple truths to certain things. And it's not a sexy answer, but it's going to take time to, to get some awareness out there. And this change seems like it should happen overnight, but that doesn't happen overnight. Nothing happens overnight. Yeah, no, when you have a system like restaurants, I mean, there I've always seen it as inequity baked into the system. And one of the big ones is workers. And now, you know, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics recently said that in September alone, about six and a half percent of all workers in the U.S. accommodation and food services industry, fancy way of saying restaurants, that they quit. It's a rate way higher than other sectors. So what should the restaurant industry do in response? I, I don't want to piss anybody off. Right. I, I, I have so much. Really? I really <laughs> don't, man. Like, and I know that like my, my id can be f***ing out of control sometimes, but it's like, you know, and I've pissed off so many people. I've hurt enough people in my my industry. I'm really just trying not to be. Uh, I don't. I don't. I, I don't even want to be the person that talks about it in a lot of ways, right? But um, because there should be others um, for sure. But part of me got upset when I heard a lot of people on a, in, I'd say a lot of, I don't say journalists, but there's a contingent of people that were like, "Well, you're not paying people more." Just in general, for people that are like, hey, uh, we're having a hard time staffing. I'm like, where are they going to get the money to pay people more? That, 
not the, the the restaurant industry is not a monolithic thing. It's impossible to cast a net that's going to encompass like everything. There's so much variety. That's what makes it beautiful, but that's also what makes it impossible to find any standardization that's going to help anybody. You know, most restaurants don't have health care. It's like, where are they going to pay for it? Where are they going to pay, you know, $25, $30 an hour? You know, I, I think like a lot of fast food restaurants, these change. I thought it was like 25, someone was $25 an hour and $2 luxury. I was like, wow, that's, but here's the thing. That's still not enough money. Once you put inflation over the, it's, you're still working for relatively, honestly, it probably equates to not what it should be. Yeah. You know, I'm not an economist, but I'm like, it just tells me that things need to be more expensive. But then it's like, okay, like, I don't know, Gustavo, I do think about this all the time and I don't have the answers because it's this endless cycle of like, how do you make it work and how do you appease one group without pissing off somebody else? I have a lot of thoughts. Not none, none of it is like really coherent because it's constantly shifting, um, and I'm really taking more of a passive role to restaurants, more of an observer because I sit in this garage uh, more than I do anything else. Like, but like, I'm always going to support. I'm always going to root for it, and you know, like, like a. There's a chef that didn't get their life insurance policy, you know, recently. And he's like, oh, fuck. like, because of pre-existing conditions. And I'm like, well, if you made more money, it wouldn't be a problem. So it's like, I don't blame anybody that's looking at this profession. Like, well, I don't want to be a chef. I don't want to do this. I don't know, Gustavo, what do you think on this? <laughs> it's hard because, again, my wife runs a restaurant. She tries to pay equitable wages. She wants to get health insurance for her workers because she believes in that. But to get more money, then she's going to have to raise prices. And then, as you said, people do not want to pay prices. Well, it goes back to something that I say about cheap tacos versus expensive tacos. Using the example of Carlos Salgado, Taco Maria in Costa Mesa, Michelin starred restaurant, where I'll tell people, yeah, you know, he sells tacos, two of them for 16 bucks. And people are like, oh, my God, it's not supposed to be that expensive. That's not real Mexican food. And I try to break it down to them and say, look, Carlos pays his employees a living wage. He gets sustainable everything, the the beef and the carne asada, the tortillas, our heirloom corn. He's doing it the right way. Now, let's compare it to the cheap tacos at your favorite lonchera where you're paying for a taco for like, let's say, $2. And you're getting cheap-ass Guerrero tortilla. So you're supporting like the tortilla monolith known as gruma. You're buying crappy meat. The workers are probably not getting paid because it's family so that's the cheap tacos that you want. Like if we want an equitable industry, we're just got to pay more all across the line. But do people really want to do that? And can people even do that? And people are doing it. There's so many chefs that are trying to do it right, but they're not getting enough credit or they're trying to do it and going out of business. I know someone's listening to me like, well, you know, I think about this all the time, guys, and it's just hard. And part of it is understanding I don't have the answers. And I think a lot of it is looking back and like, am I creating the problem? Am I creating a solution? Am I, it's such a, feels paradoxical in a lot of ways. And what I have personally come to is less talking about it and finding action to do it where you're not talking about it, where it sort of speaks for itself. And 
you know, I'm trying to find those ways of what they are. And for me, it's trying to find new opportunities for people that maybe don't have to work in restaurants or work in restaurants to find new ways to like make ends meet and to make a better living or make a, not just a living. I hate the word living wage. I hate it so much, right? That should just tell you everything. You know, it's like, what a crappy combination of words. Food has been subsidized for so long. So, you know, and part of it is embracing things that I don't necessarily like because maybe that's where the answer is. Like, I don't necessarily love ghost kitchens. We've been screwing around with it. We still work with a lot of the delivery services, but are like, what if, unfortunately, that is the future? So how do you make it work for people? I don't know. So it's like, part of it is everything's on the table. I, I, that's where I'm at is like, I don't have the answers because I don't think we sifted through what works and doesn't work quite yet well enough. And... um I don't know. I could talk forever without making any sense on this. So my apologies. Now, I'm sure that's going to be in the second season of your next show. So we'll, we'll I'll claim credit that we uh, workshopped it right here on The Times. So a uh, little bit more controversial subject, location. You've made your name in New York City, but now you're based in Southern California. I'm not going to ask you which scene is better, but what should the East Coast learn from the West Coast about how to make food better and the food, our food systems better and then vice versa? I don't even know what if I can talk about food systems. I just think the food scenes are different. I was telling my shrink this actually because I I unloaded on him so much when I was trying to come up with what to make at the Momofuku because in a lot of ways Momofuku was a you know a private expression of my Asian American identity. Um, yeah, and I know that sounds like a load of crap, but in a lot of ways it is and was um, less so today than it was when we started because I was an angry kid. I was so angry and I felt that I didn't have the opportunities, even though I've been blessed with opportunities, but it was my own myopic understanding of the world at the time. And I feel, you know, I've aged and gotten better, I hope. Mm. But I think a lot, if I had to grow up in the San Gabriel Valley, would I even be a cook today? Would I have anything to say culinary wise? And the answer is, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Um, being Asian American here in Los Angeles, clearly there's always racial tension in Los Angeles. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not utopia by any means, but at least for being Asian at least, there's less resistance here in the food you eat, in the representation you see than where I grew up in the East Coast and in New York City where... Yes, you still have your pockets. You're talking about SGV. You're talking about creatine. You're talking about Philippines. You're talking about orange. Things are still, you know, not segregated. They're 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 walled off, but they're more integrated as a whole in the Los Angeles food scene. Do you think you would have opened up a Momofuku if you grew up in the San Gabriel Valley or you know in Koreatown? No, no, no. Which is why you know I, I have been when I say I've been putting the work in, like I I want to know why. I, I like I've been trying to understand why I'm a angry dude, why I yelled because it's not who I am. And and like part of that was like I was so angry opening up Momofuku, not even in the kitchen. I was angry at trying to express the idea of don't tell me what I have to make as an Asian food. Don't tell me that it has to have dumplings. Don't tell me I have to have X, Y, Z because it's this. Don't tell me I have to have a golden cat waving. Don't tell me I have to sell mochi, whatever it was. Um, don't tell me my food has to be $5. And I think for me, it was resistance. I'm not being accepted. 
when I go to the supermarkets here, it's ridiculous. And, you know, you go to Alhambra Farmer's Market on Sunday, I'm like, they're all majority Asian farmers selling Asian vegetables, stuff that I've never even seen before. It doesn't get the glory that Santa Monica, clearly because it's unbelievable, but I'm like, where would I find these things that old aunties and grandmas asked some farmer to grow because they brought a seed back from wherever they were from and they're growing it. I feel like I'm in Asia at a market because you could see them like buying it like they used to buy it or grow it back in the day. It's like that moment. I'm like, wow, this isn't even in an H Mart. This is actually at a farmer's market and I'm seeing fruits and vegetables that I've never seen before. It's organic. You you live it. I mean, growing up in Southern California, you know, I grew up thinking teriyaki bowls were a Mexican thing. I would never have thought of it as an Asian thing. You get your teriyaki bowl, drink it with horchata, wash it down with some tapatio. Or I always love, I'm sure you've seen this, the live poultry shops where you see signs. And let's see, English, Spanish, Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese. And then Arabic, you know, in a way it's superficial. Yeah, like, oh, we're all eating the same food or whatever. But in a way, it's also really profound. And it is very much a Southern California West Coast ideology because we're right there at the gates. You have to look south to Latin America and then to the west towards Asia. (laughs) But like, again, like the food is so good here and there's so much diversity and it's an embarrassment of riches that nobody's really put the SGV on the pedestal that it deserves and the Alhambra area on the pedestal it deserves because it's stupid how good it is. Minati, this, the great movie that came out last year, it was like hard for me to watch because like that was my life. We'd have to travel before one opened up close to us like an hour and a half to go to a place to get stuff that was old and stale just to satiate my parents. And it's everywhere now. Like my son if he grows up in LA forever, we'll never know what it's like not to have the variety of fish sauce, the variety of kimchi, the variety of noodles. It's like the rice. It's crazy. And because of that, and because it's accepted and be not accepted, there is a, um, like a fluency of knowledge of people that live in Los Angeles that they know it's not on the level. Nothing's on the level of say people that live in Japan. Right. Uh, in terms of their food literacy, uh, high-level literacy. But people know more about different kinds of flavors and foods. And I would say that a lot of the food in Los Angeles and most of the restaurants that are not sort of European-based, but the newer generation where it's a little bit more like a genesis or a progeny of, say, Wolfgang Puck. And again, Wolfgang Puck could not exist without Los Angeles itself. The flavors are more bold. And people are like, well everything spicy. I was like, no, that pisses me off. You think that everything's spicier. I was like, no, these are flavors that are distinctly not traditional American that you grew up eating. So you think they're a little bit bolder. The only reason it's bolder and you think it's louder is because like you're the one eating the boring bland food and this is the normal way of eating. Yeah. So a lot of these flavors that if you go around, it's just accentuated to a way that feels like it's on 11 for a lot of people outside of Los Angeles. There's so much more spice. There's so much more herbaceous flavors. There's so much more almost everything if you're looking for it. And clearly you can find stuff that is a BLT if you want, but that's what I think makes it different in terms of the flavors. There's more literacy, fluency of different flavors that I think a lot of places in the world don't have access to, quite frankly. Yeah, so in this environment among these people – 
with this future of food that you see, that you talk about in your show, what do you hope for your sons growing up in all this? Hmm. Well, I know that he's growing, he's getting really spoiled on farmer's market fruits. <laughs> um, I do think about this a lot. I don't know what it's like to, you know, we talked about a lot of things in the past and it's the same thing, like growing up in a Korean household where I was always scared of my dad. And this seems like a leap of logic, but it's like they don't have to have resistance in food and they don't have to be called chink, you know, uh, or gook yeah. uh, growing up, which was hurled at me a lot. Um, you know, don't touch me, Dave. Don't get your gook on me. You know, like that stuff that stays with you forever. I hope that doesn't happen to them. And not only will that probably not happen to them, they're not going to be made fun of for their food. And they're going to be integrated with all kinds of cultures and skin colors. And I'm like, it's hard for me to fathom, and going back to what you were saying about the restaurant industry, it's hard for me to fathom what it's like to live in an environment where there's love and... Uh, just everything's copacetic. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like utopia. We're like, wait, what What do you do? Is this the United States we've always been promised? Are we almost there? That's what you, that's what you think. You see it, then you remember, you know, reality, the life that we live in. But with that next generation, with this world, this culture that we have in Southern California, you can kind of sketch out what is that promised land over there. I don't know, man. We're, we're very far from it. And um, for sure. I, I do have a hard time. Like I, like I, 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 like when I, I know again, it's like, it's just, I live in a world of analogy. I think I talk to my wife about it all the time. Like, man, like what would it be like? What's Hugo going to be like? Because he never gets yelled at. He never, you know, it's, it's like deescalating. It's all of these things. We're trying to raise him in a house of like love, like a word that never got thrown away in my lifetime growing up. What is that going to be like? It's just hard for me to comprehend because I don't know. I've never felt that. So like I can see what might be on the other side for food, but like I still don't know because it just seems like a pipe dream in a lot of ways. Yet you still keep hope. At the end of everything, you still keep hope. <laughs> you know, I don't joke. I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of my people, my friends know that I'm like an Eeyore-like subject. I'm extremely depressed. And I am a, <laughs> I can get extremely dark and down about a lot of things. But Eeyore was cute though, man. <laughs> but I have to remain hopeful because I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong about all of my dark thoughts um, because that's what gives me life is these ideas that can mobilize, that can actually change things, that can make things better, that you got to believe that things can improve. If I can get better, then people can get better and the food industry can get better, all of these things. But as cliche and as romantic as it sounds, like I also am mad at myself because like, is that just too romantic of a, a vision of what do you think the future could be? I, I don't know. But I have to remain hopeful. You have to hold out hope. And I think that is a dangerous proposition because it means that you are inactive. You're thinking about it, not doing. Dave, thank you so much for this conversation, man. Thanks, Gustavo. Appreciate it.
And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, the temporary disappearance of a tennis star in China revealed a new front in the country's culture wars. Our show is produced by Shannon Lin, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brosalian, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Lauren Rapp. Our executive producers are Jasmine Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias.